The Akkad and Kokai Report, episode number 132. Welcome to the Akkad and Kokai Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the Akkad and Kokai Report. Today, we are delighted to have as our guest, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Dr. Singleton has a bachelor's degree from Stanford University. She obtained her medical degree from UCSF, completed an anesthesiology fellowship at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, took a faculty position briefly at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, then came back to California, where she obtained, while practicing anesthesiology, she obtained a law degree from UC Berkeley, specializing in administrative and constitutional law. She has done many interesting things in her life, including a run for Congress in 2012 for California's 13th district to give its citizen, quote, the right to control their own lives, unquote, and also serving as president of AAPS, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, a couple of years ago. Marilyn, thank you for joining us. It's so good to be here. It's my pleasure. It's great to have you. We we talked about it for for a long time. I mean, I think it's, it was at the APS meeting from a, a year ago, and I'm sorry that it took us so long to get you here. But here we are. Uh, lots to talk about, and you know, but the, but the issue that is sort of thrust upon us, and that we thought you know we'd, it'd be great to talk with you about, is this question of of race that is on everybody's mind, or at least the media puts it, puts it on our mind. Uh, there are riots and protests and statues and being uh, toppled and maybe medical school building names being renamed and what have you. So we want to talk about what's the, the right way to think about race and medicine and, and, and the right way to talk about it, perhaps, or, or get that perspective from you. But first, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your background I mean, your educational pedigree is just absolutely amazing. And uh, tell, I mean, did you do you come from a family of physicians? Were your parents in medicine? Or what, how, how did that start for you? My father was a physician and my mother's father was a physician. He graduated from Ohio State when it was called Starling Medical College in 1905. And uh, wow. he was a doctor in the First World War in Kansas, and um, went to a small town in Ohio, Lima, Ohio. And I have a wonderful news article and a picture about him. He was going to leave Lima and go over to the next town because he thought Lima was a little small. And then the townsfolk came out and uh, they said, please, Dr. Bradfield, don't go, don't go. So he stayed in Lima. And I went back there um, probably about 10 years ago or so uh, to visit. And I, I had never been to the town. It was after my mother had died. And uh, it went all over town. They said, Dr. Bradfield's granddaughter is in town. We have to talk to her. The, wow, they still remembered. And well, it was amazing. A woman came up to me and said, oh, your grandfather delivered me. And, and I, everyone was so jealous because I was one of the last babies and, and all this. So it was kind of funny. And then um, he, there's a center in Lima named after him. It's called the Bradfield Center. And it helps out low-income people. It has computers and 
and um, uh, you know, various games and whatnot for kids to play after school. And I was talking to Mr. Potts, the fellow who was the head of the center at the time. And I said, well, what happened to the swimming pool? Because I had a picture of a bond. They actually, the town had a bond to build the Bradfield Center. And then there was another bond to build the swimming pool. And Mr. Potts said, oh, they just built that swimming pool so the black people didn't have to swim in the same pool as the white people. And then there was so much liability associated with it, they just filled it in. So <laughs> no more swimming pool. And so I said, well, where's the cemetery? And he said, well, there's two parts to the cemetery. There's the black part and the white part. And he says, he didn't know where Dr. Bradfield was. So I went to the cemetery and they said, oh, Dr. Bradfield. Well, we let him be buried up on the hill. So he was buried on the white part of the cemetery and not on the other side. Well, how interesting. So what kind yeah. of town was it? Well, interestingly, and I didn't know this, my mother never told me that Lima sort of had a nickname of Dark Town because the black people there were very fair skinned. And Ohio was, and Pennsylvania were the early states where interracial marriage was not a crime. So you go to Pennsylvania and Ohio and you see a lot of blonde hair, blue eyed black people. I, my mother was blonde hair, blue eyed. And, uh, but as she always said, I'm free black and 21. And that was her preface before she would march off and go do something, you know, quite bold. Right. Wow, that's amazing. So, um... Your grandfather, you said, graduated in 1905, mm -hmm. which to me is a, is a very uh, important. I mean, I know the date, I know the Flexner report and when that came about, you know, in 1910, 1911. And so he graduated, for, he went to medical school at Ohio State. State. What, what's now Ohio State. Okay. Which was not necessarily then a, uh, a black medical college. Oh, not at all. Right. No. Right. It was, there were probably two black people now. And then my cousin who collects all this genealogy of the family swears that maybe they didn't know that granddaddy was black, but we'll never know. It's kind of hard to know, but the other guy clearly was black. So they weren't discriminating back then. Okay. So that's the interesting thing about racial things is that it's, I think a lot of people don't realize how well in the past black folks had done. And I always, when, when I was in law school and there were these young kids and, and they thought that blacks started to succeed after 1965. And I would just roll over laughing. And I'd say, this was be for the internet. I'd say, well, I want you to look up Madam C.J. Walker. And she was a millionaire in 1912. And she saw a pathway to make money, which was black hair products. And she was the first female black millionaire. And people were like, oh, black people had money back then? And it's like, yeah, they did, and a lot of it. And newspaper people, lots of money, property. And the other thing a lot of people don't know is that all black people weren't slaves. 
And this just amazes me how ignorant people are of history. When they did the first census, 10% of blacks were free. And um, there had been black legislators in Vermont and New York. Um, and in fact, in Maryland, it was the black voters that helped to ratify the Articles of Confederation. And that was the other thing. And it was well known that black people could vote. And um, the dissent in the Dred Scott decision quite specifically talks about the blacks who were citizens. So people, when they get this idea that all black people were slaves, they're just totally wrong. And one of my biggest pet peeves was when people use that old meme and say, well, the constitution said black people were three-fifths of a man. And that's totally not what the three-fifths clause meant. It was for counting votes for Congress people. So when they were gathering up, okay, how do we apportion the Congress when they were trying to figure out how to make things work for the Constitution, there was a big argument. The South wanted to count every slave as a person. And the North said, well, if you don't let them vote, then you shouldn't be able to count them as a person. And so they said, no, we want to count them as a person. And that would have given the South more Congress people than the North. And so a fellow from Pennsylvania interjected and said, okay, do you think slaves are property? Yes. Then they said, if you get to count your slaves as a person to get more votes in Congress, then we get to count our cows as people to equalize out the votes. Well, of course that sounded pretty stupid. So the compromise was to count a slave as three fifths of a person. And then it ended up evening out Congress more. So the South did not have a majority in Congress. So it actually helped the abolitionists, but people who have another agenda, they don't like the truth. Many times people don't like the truth. And anyway, that's the truth of where three-fifths came from. Right, right. So was your family in um, uh, so Ohio? Where, or how, how far back can you trace it? Or? Oh, all back to the 1800s, early 1800s. And that's the other kind of neat thing about a small town is when I went there, I went to the Historical Society and they have... Um, genealogy on people in town and newspaper articles and land possession deeds and all that kind of stuff. So it was really kind of cool to be able to go back and see um, where the Bradfields were. Now, the other side of the family, the Singletons, my father is from Richmond, Virginia, and um, the family had been there for forever. So it's, uh, and he was just a regular guy, regular family, but um, very smart, went to college when he was 15 and a half and um, knew he wanted to be a doctor. He went to Meharry, he went, he went to Virginia Union, which I don't even know if Virginia Union still exists. That was a black college. And um, then went to Meharry, which still exists. Uh, a black medical school. And my mother went to Fisk 
this, these are in Nashville, Tennessee, and Fisk was kind of across the street from Meharry. And that was the big joke of my sister saying, well, mother just went to Fisk to find a doctor at Meharry. And, and mother didn't see that as an insult at all. She says, well, of course, why else would somebody go? That's, that's great. So, um, but, you know, you, you alluded to that. I mean, again, people's perception is that everything, the, 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 the situation of the black community has, you know, improved or, you know, since the civil rights and, you know, it's a very complicated story. I mean, I mean, clearly maybe, I mean, certainly in some sense, you know, things have improved, but in many other ways it has not. And, um, but to go back to the, the, the early 1900s, your grandfather graduating, um, then you had, you know, the, the AMA pushing the Flexner reforms, which shuttered uh, a whole bunch of uh, black medical colleges. Mm-hmm. Probably not Meharry. I don't think, no. I think Meharry and, uh, and Howard. Howard were the only two. Right. And they're, they're still around. They, there were eight that closed and those eight were generally christian schools that's who started the medical schools for blacks and and usually that's who started the colleges early on and um two more black medical schools opened re- more recently like you know 70s or so Morehouse and Drew, Morehouse in Georgia and Drew out here in Los Angeles. Um, Drew had its ups and downs, but Morehouse apparently has always done pretty well. But, you know, you say some things have changed, but I think people need to know how strong Black people were and how much they achieved. And and it was always fascinating listening to my mother who certainly lived through a transition. And my father was at Tuskegee during the war. And that was the first time my mother had been in the South. And so things were segregated, but she said it was interesting once integration came in, a lot of the black businesses were kind of sorry because they had a very good business. And then once people could go anywhere they wanted to, that they wouldn't necessarily go to the black business that wasn't in the best location or whatever. But I think about my mother's college, big sister. Um, People are always stunned to hear this and she only recently died. Her big sister in the 1940s, was a dentist, a black female dentist. So when people think that, oh, you know, people didn't do anything. I mean, uh, one of my mother's, mother's dear friends, husband was a lawyer for the Republican Party from the 1930s and 40s. I mean, you, I can tell you so many things that folks did and, and um, uh, Basically, there's a whole high society of black folks and and some of it integrated way back when. So things opened up for more people as the 60s progressed. 
And then there, we even had this really nice period where you can honestly say things started to become race neutral. And then that's when something, I think it was Booker T. Washington, which I could find the quote, years ago, obviously, had said, there's a certain kind of Negro who loves to have other Negroes do. And he, what he was describing, he said, were the race hustlers. And enter the race hustlers of today when you had Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, who almost saw this as a carve out for them to be able to stoke fires of race rather than like Martin Luther King did, where he tried to smooth things over and have people look at people as individuals, which many people do in their day-to-day -day lives. And, and somebody once told me, do, do you really think white people wake up in the morning thinking, boy, do I hate black people? Or how am I gonna hurt a black person today? Of course they don't. They're just worried about how they're gonna live their life. And that's what people were doing. And so it, it, it is objectionable to have people kind of stoke the fires. And yes, things aren't great for everyone, but I really object to painting uh, people who aren't black as hideous creatures and throwing the word racist around is, is not productive. Marilyn, tell us about your experience going through, you know, predominantly, I suspect, um, I mean, you know, white schools and your residency program and, and so forth. Was there, I mean, did you find that, the, you know, any kind of uh, discrimination or any, um, uh, any obstacle that you had to navigate around or any, anything of that sort? Well, it's kind of funny. Growing up, mother's mantra to us was, you never have to take low to anyone. And it was like, you take it from there with your life. And so we were always told we could do whatever we wanted to do and nobody was better than us. And if that's inculcated into you from a very early age, and I went to Catholic school and, um, and I went to Catholic school because of when my birthday was, my parents weren't Catholic, but I was only three is my birthday was in December and the public school wouldn't take me, but there was a Catholic school down the street. And they said, if she's toilet trained, she can start school. So that's how we became Catholic. And, um, and it was, I lived in a segregated neighborhood. Most of the kids were Mexicans or black. And my school allowed kids to commute from Tijuana to come to school. So I learned Spanglish on the playground yard. And uh, they had to speak English in class, but they spoke Spanish while we were playing. And uh, so then I went to public school, which was an inner city public school but I had never seen fights or gangs or anything like that being in Catholic school. And uh, so that was a real eye opener, but they had 
advanced classes, remedial classes, wood shop and all that stuff. So kids were kind of divided up. So there were probably a handful of black kids in my classes. And, uh, but it, this people, it wasn't always on people's minds. Now it came up with school dances whether people could have interracial dating at school dances because the schools didn't want fights or anything like that because they did have gangs. They did have halls in my high school, which kind of cracks me up when I think about it now. They had WAP Hall, Skin Hall, Splib Hall. Splib is a, a nice slang term for Black. And uh, Junior Hall and Senior Hall. and even those halls weren't segregated. It was just kind of like, hey, most of the Italian kids had their locker there. So there's stuff like that, but it wasn't ugly or negative. And which is kind of interesting to think, oh, you have these racial names for these hallways for lockers. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a, an interesting time. And uh, so people weren't always talking about it. Then when I went to Stanford, there, it was, they did not have but a handful of black people there. And it was the first year um, that there was more than one. And, uh, but I think everybody got along okay. And people didn't feel put upon. I was never discriminated against in college. And I would say the only kind of nasty thing that was ever said to me in medical school was when I was on my OBGYN rotation as a medical student. And that's where they taught us how to do IVs since the women had big veins from pregnancy. And it was my turn to start the IV. And the resident had skipped me over and I said, well, I believe it's my turn. And he said, well, who do you think you are? Angela Singleton. And that's when Angela Davis, the radical was in the news. And I don't know how he meant it, if you know, he meant it to be cruel, but karma is out there. I won't say his name, but fast forward about 30 years later, I'm reading in the medical board list they have at the end of their newsletter that they send out quarterly, and it has the doctors whose licenses had been suspended. And I saw his name with the suspended <laughs> license. I thought that'll teach you. <laughs> so, um, so, and then you, so you have Stanford and then UCSF and then no glass ceiling for you. I, I didn't feel the way, and I'll be honest with you, this whole idea of living well is the best revenge type thing. And it was, and my father always told me, said, you might have to work harder than the next guy, but just keep going. And when I started my surgery residency, um, there had only been one woman, the first woman at UC was the one year ahead of me. Uh, and um, Karen was a real dynamo. And Dr. Blaisdell, who was the chief at San Francisco General at the time said, well, 
you know we don't like to take women, even though they had a woman surgeon, Muriel Steele, she was a trauma surgeon, was on the staff, but they were kind of like, well, we don't know about women. And, um, and so it was like, he said, but you have all eight, so what am I gonna do? And he laughed and, you know, and he knew me. And so there I was, I was accepted to the residency and um, did well, got to operate all the time. And, and um, I just say it's a lesson in if you do your job well, you get rewarded. Now, I can't say that everybody has had that experience. And I think in my anesthesia residency that um, I had a very proper chief of anesthesia and he was always called by his name first or his last name. And we always called our other attendings by their first name, but he was always Dr. Headley White. And I talked back to him during a uh, resident meeting we had, not nastily. He said something about, I said there weren't enough books in the library of this book that we all had to read. And I said, well, there's only seven books, but there's 17 of us. So how are we all gonna read this book by next Tuesday? And then he told me, well, Dr. Singleton, I imagine with two incomes in your family, you could afford to buy the book. And I said, that's irrelevant. You should have enough books for everybody. So it was like that when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen and the room is silent and they're saying, oh, Marilyn, that's the end of your residency. Well, lo and behold, he and I became tight friends that he really appreciated someone who could speak up for themselves. So that was a lesson and I would tell medical students and then later law students, I'd say, you can't be afraid to speak up for yourself. You do it politely. You know, you're not swearing and cursing and all this stuff. Like some people kind of take that advice the wrong way and you don't yell at people and belittle them. You just state your case. And most of the time it will work out for you. And in the end, you will always feel better about yourself. And even if you don't win, quote unquote, you walk away with your dignity. So what accounts for, in your mind, for this today, this widespread perception of uh, endemic injustice and prejudice? And now your typical medical school or even your typical Catholic school or whatnot, I mean, they're all ready to, you know, make public mea culpas and, and take knees and, and, and so forth. For, for what's and this is not just from this year uh, you know it's been going on for, for for several years many years it's it's interesting because I am sure there are incidents don't get me wrong and I'm sure there's incidents where um, you know if I wanted to go back and, and and think about every bad thing that ever happened to me in my life that people should be sorry for. However, I'm, I would say a little more zen about it that you can't always dwell in the past. One, it makes you a very unhappy person and you can't move forward and you don't open up to people. If you're constantly 
picking at scabs. And I'm sure that there are incidents where bad things have been done to people. But that's where you dust yourself off. And, you know, it's like, as we say in the business, kung fu and move on. And a lot of people haven't learned that. And I just feel so fortunate that that's what my parents taught me. And yeah, I've had hurts and things where you think, well, maybe I deserve that. But then on the other hand, as my father told me, you can never get upset if you don't get like a job and multiple people have interviewed for it because it might be that they gave it to their nephew for all you know, it might not be you. So there's just little things to think about and, and it is true. And most of the time of things that haven't worked out the way I thought it was gonna work out, you end up getting something better. I'll tell you when I applied to USC for medical school during the interview, now this was before um, women's rights, I was asked, did I have a boyfriend and did I plan on getting married? Now it's of course illegal to ask that now. Well, I told the interviewer, I don't think I wanna go to your medical school if that's what you think is important and then left the interview. So you feel like, and that's what people have to do. It's like, do you wanna be around those people? You know, find other people. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the question of sort of forcing people to, you know, pretend they like you and, or, you know, I mean, how, how productive can that be? Exactly. I, I would think you can't make people like you. And, and I think that's why they have this whole thing where they're saying everything is systemic. Well, I have my own little feeling about whether things are systemic. You know, businesses are in business to make money, right? Why would a business have a black spokesperson and many big ones do all stay the credit, I think it's Capital One credit card company, and I could name several other, other businesses, and you see them all over TV. If people systemically hated black people, you wouldn't buy the product with a black person there advertising it. You'd say, well, why do I want something a black person wants? So certainly overall, people do not have negative feelings. Now, people who live in poverty that's a whole different story and a whole different dynamic. And it's a sad dynamic because that seemed to develop in the 60s, kind of paradoxically, when there was the war on poverty and the government started giving welfare and the rules of welfare were that a man couldn't be in the house. So then you have the uptick in fatherlessness and that crosses racial lines. Um, and then having people dependent on the government rather than themselves, that, that was not good and not good for black people. And, and interestingly, you see a huge difference between American blacks and blacks who've migrated here from someplace else. And when people are ticking off these numbers of 
who's in these Ivy League schools and I'll say, oh, well, you know, we have three black people. Well, guess who they are? They're Africans or Jamaicans. They're not American blacks. And so there's a real problem. And, um, you know, certainly a Jamaican or African skin is just as dark as an American black skin. So what's the difference? You know, what happened in society? What is it that's not being taught in the home to give folks that umph that those of us from the 50s who, like I say, even though I grew up in a segregated neighborhood, you still had the umph to say, hey, I'm as good as you are. I never felt inferior. But, and to have, I feel sorry for people who feel inferior. And I think it's attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt that said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And that's a, something people have to take to heart and say, don't let them do it to you. Stand up for yourself. So, Marilyn, you've had occasion to speak publicly on different issues. I mean, you, you, you ran for Congress and so forth. Do you get flack for holding the position that you hold, what, what you just described? Oh, absolutely. And it, it's so funny because, in fact, just uh, Friday, Larry Elder had a movie come out called Uncle Tom, wherein he interviews several people who have that same idea that you push through and you work hard. Again, it's not saying that slavery wasn't hideous. It's not saying that it's okay to rob people of their humanity. That doesn't, and that's what people try to say, are you saying slavery wasn't bad? Of course it was, but turn it around and look at it the other way. How strong must black people have been to be able to escape from slavery. Some of the ideas they came up with to escape and then became famous and Frederick Douglass going to the White House and Booker T. Washington starting a college. And, and uh, I, I'll tell you a story about Uncle Earl. Now, Uncle Earl is not a blood relative. Now, Uncle Earl would be, um, uh, you know, 130 were he alive. Uncle Earl was a porter with the railroads. And he saw that the railroads were, and he tells the story so much better than I ever could, that the railroads after the meals threw out, just threw out all the stuff. And he said, well, I asked my boss, could I have all that leftover slop from the meals? And he says, the boss looked like, you crazy N-word, do you really want that? When he says, I'll take it, I says, you can have it. So what Uncle Earl did was sell the old garbage to the farmers along the course of the railroad as pig sloth. And he said, then I made so much money doing that. He said, what do you do when you make a lot of money? You start a bank. So he started a bank out here in um, Los Angeles, and it became actually quite large and had several branches. And then in the 70s, sold it to Lincoln Savings. So this is black ingenuity. Sure. And, you know, it's, it, these are the stories that people need to hear. And instead of the bad stories, 
to give them some hope. We all know the bad stories, but what people need is hope to know that you can do that yourself. And yeah, maybe you do have to work harder, but then it makes you more proud. There's so much emphasis on, you know, the, the collective, you know, I mean, it's, it's just painting whole segments of people with, with the same uh, paintbrush, you know, the same brush stroke. It's very damaging. I mean, what you, what you describe is really the, the inventiveness, the ingenuity of a person, an individual, right? A real man, a real woman, that woman who had her business, you know, and, and if we keep, you know, hammering the idea that, you know, the, these systemic biases and these systemic implicit things that even if you think that you're not racist, you might be racist anyways without knowing and all that. We have the statistics to prove it and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's really very, um, you know, uh, very, very, I think it's very nasty, very damaging. Uh, interesting that to, the to, yeah, argument, go ahead, Sanish. Yeah. It's interesting that the arguments seem to be sourced from the um, intellectual community, from the uh, from higher education, um, you know, uh, academics that um, don't have your experience, don't have, you know, Dr. Ben Carson's experience. Um, you know, uh, do, do you have any sense of why that is, you know, I've gone back and looked at uh, or re read, uh, you know, James Baldwin, um, you know, brilliant order and, or, uh, you know, quite, uh, you know, he, and it's so interesting to, to see that what he was saying in the 1960s is, is, you know, is basically parroted now, now as well. Um, and it seems to be the same type of MO in terms of, you know, uh, Mr. Baldwin was, you know, pretty successful um, in what he did, um, but part of the reason for his success was in kind of, uh, you know, with the rhetorical flourish, kind of making the oppression narrative. And it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a narrative that has a, a lot of currency, especially when it comes with that academic backing. What, what, what do you, why do you think that is? It, it's interesting when you bring in academics. One, I, I was in academics, not for not a really long time, but it is a different world and you do have to make yourself relevant, have to come up with various theories, whether they make sense in the real world or not, doesn't really matter. And I, I also find academics can be very compartmentalized and not look at the big picture. Um, and there's no question that some people just wanna make a splash and half the time, I don't know whether they really believe some of the stuff they say um, in contrast to people who honestly believe their activism and believe that their way is the correct way to achieve racial um, uh I, I wish I had a good answer what makes academics different, but perhaps that's just the people that go into it. I don't know. Uh, there certainly is something to be gained for telling angry black man stories or, or um, put upon woman stories. I'm, I think there's more to be gained from telling positive stories um, 
you know, why is it that these kids are only shown, they think the only rich black people are athletes or rap singers and, and not like poor man who died all too young, um, uh, Reginald Lewis, who wrote a book called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? Probably couldn't do a title like that these days. Everybody's so sensitive. But he grew up a poor boy in Baltimore and was a waiter at a country club. And he overheard people talking about stocks and bonds and all that and said, I want to do that when I grow up. And he did. He got a scholarship and ended up buying Beatrice International and a leveraged buyout for almost a billion dollars. So kids need to hear that. And Reginald Lewis, by his own admission, said, you know, he wasn't smart, but he was people smart. And um, uh, there's so many stories like this. I'll tell you, since we're medical, since we're doctors here, about Dr. James Durham. Now, this was a fellow born in the mid-1700s. And he had been a slave of a British guy who taught him how to be his nurse. It was a British doctor, taught him how to be his nurse. He thought he had a real aptitude for it. And then during the war, James kind of got shifted around. He ended up having another master, but who saw his talents and continued to teach him how to be a doctor. And that was the old days when you learned to be a doctor by apprenticeship. And, um, He's James Durham is considered to be the first black doctor. And this is in the late 1700s that he became officially became a doctor. He moved to New Orleans. He, the, his master freed him and he moved to New Orleans, practiced medicine. He, he spoke Spanish, French, as well as English, of course. He had white and black patients. He had helped with yellow fever. He got awards from the famous Dr. Benjamin Rush. And um, he stopped practicing medicine in the early 1800s when um, in Louisiana, they said you had to have a degree from a medical school in order to be considered a doctor. But what a success story. And these, I think, are inspirational stories that the youth need to hear, and you have to balance that. But I still go back to, and I tell kids when I talk to middle schools, that imagine the courage and the strength to escape from slavery, that you're not weak, you're not a wimp. And you certainly aren't inferior if you figured out how to overpower some rich fool who owned you. So you're actually better than they are. And, you know, there's ways you have to turn the narrative around. And um, like Booker T. Washington said, and people say now that there's a certain group of people who have this as their occupation to keep other people down. And, and it's so wrong. And it's, um, I think some black people are waking up to that, that why, why would you not want us to achieve? Why would you not 
want us to move ahead. Right. And I was I was going to ask you about that because it's I mean on the one hand it's it's almost um, it seems depressing because you know your voice. Uh, I'm thinking about Thomas Sowell, people like that who've done a lot of the scholarship. Then you know the real life stories that you tell. All these things seem to be completely set aside, and and you know especially as Anish said in academic circles and whatnot. You know they're they're discarded. I mean, who can be more convincing than Thomas Sowell with his work? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yet he's completely you know as if he didn't exist. Well, but yeah, yet, and, yet and at the same time, do you, Uncle Tom, right? And then that makes it go away. Uh, but do you think, and, and particularly among blacks, do you think there's a, a, an awakening? I mean, uh, they're, I mean they're, they're, if you look at what happened in the, since the 60s, it's really hard to argue that they're better off to the sort of class warfare that they've been ensnared in. Um, you think there's a, an awakening or? I, it's hard for me to know. It seems like there is, and more and more you'll hear folks speak out and um, and perhaps it is reading history. And, and this is why some of these riots and all this stuff bothers me when history is ignored and, you know, tearing down statues and all that, that it's like, why, why doesn't everybody sit down and have good history lessons? Because everyone has clay feet, you know, people who, were considered, I, I have to laugh that um, there'd be a lot of black people have to change their name if people were to think about Roosevelt, who had used the N word and who catered to the unions that didn't have black people in it. You know, a lot of people don't know that National Recovery Administration and the New Deal, black people called it, they had all sorts of little names, which I thought were kind of cute. Negro Removal Act, Negroes Ruined Again, Negroes Robbed Again, because they were cut out of the unions. But Roosevelt, right, who everybody right. thinks was God's gift to the world, he set that up. And, you know, if and, and there weren't Black people in the unions back then, so the Black people were out of a job. So there's images that are built around people that aren't necessarily true. And I'm not saying... Roosevelt was the evilest man in the world. What he did to the Japanese was pretty bad. And that's another thing that gets sort of whitewashed and because they want him to be great. And yet there's somebody else that they want to be awful, therefore ignore the great things that he did. This whole Ulysses S. Grant thing because his wife had a slave. Well, it was a wedding gift and then he freed the slave. So it's like, so his statue deserves to be torn down, even though he risked his life to win the Civil War. I mean, you know, so people are getting riled up without knowing facts. But as Eric Hoffer said, that emotion works better than facts. And that's what people are stoked with is emotion. And you try to tell the facts, you wonder, you know, how can you not believe Thomas Sowell? I mean, he puts out fact after fact after fact, but it doesn't matter because the picture of the downtrodden person is 
a much better political tool than saying, hey, let's work together to improve things for everybody, lift up the socioeconomic status, and darn it, a welfare check will guarantee that you always have a low income because it's always going to be whatever the government wants to give you. And it's like, no. And even Eldridge Cleaver, Minister of Information for the Black Panthers, he came around to the idea that you don't want a government program because you're always at their behest, their will, that you want a private program that you develop yourself, create your own jobs, and that's how you will elevate yourself in society. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's disheartening to to see um, you know among doctors um, so many buying into this um, this sort of narrative. You know, Marilyn. Before we uh, we close, maybe one uh, bringing bringing it back to the to the medical field. Um, th there's a movement among uh, academic again academic uh, doctors to uh, do away with any kind of references to race in medical uh, standards or norms. For example. Right now, it's common to list the uh, you know lab values according to what, what what's considered normal among a black population versus a Caucasian population or a non-black, and that sort of thing. And some people want to do away with that on the basis of the fact that there's no biological reality to races, uh, which is probably correct. But at the same time, uh, so what are your thoughts on this? I mean, would you prefer to have lab values that are just indiscriminate and uh and and that we do away with any kind of uh race uh, sensitivity in in our doctoring well it, it's kind of interesting because certainly certain races or whatever construct you want to say um have different problems and you can't deny that there's genetic things like sickle cell trait and uh sickle cell anemia and uh, thalassemia, uh, Tay-Sachs, certain things that run in certain groups of people. So you certainly want to make sure there's research directed toward those things. And you have to admit that, yes, it's different. There's, yes, there are some people that, white people that have sickle cell anemia, but not many. Um, so, and as far as the lab tests, I never did quite figure out why they had the kidney tests that they decided were different, but they also have decided that the EKG is different and that the T wave differences are because of different muscle and all that. Well, you could certainly have these lab tests and not attach a race to it, but that's where you need a real doctor who then looks at the person. I mean, it's the same thing like with the, the BMI for being overweight. A football player could have a high BMI, but he's not fat. And somebody else can have one that's just a little bit over, but because of they never exercise or anything, they have no muscle and they're pure fat. So you've got to look at the whole picture. And so I think you certainly could... Um, uh, ignore race. I think it's funny that these days people look all sorts of different ways. And you, for a lot of people, you wouldn't know what race they were, you know, if they walked in and 
everybody's name was John Doe, because sometimes the name gives it away. Look at a name. She could be anything. He could be anything. And um, his name kind of gives him away a little bit, but um, it's the sort of thing where look at the person. And I think this is all we need to do, even as doctors, you know, they talk about healthcare disparities and, oh, we need more people on Medicaid and all that. Well, interestingly, just today, the CMS came out with the numbers on COVID and guess who has the highest COVID? Of course, Medicare patients, because we know more older people get it. And then what's next? People on Medicaid. And I certainly say, get rid of it all and let poor people get individualized care and be treated like an individual and not like a race or a socioeconomic status. You're just a person who walks into the office with a story to tell the doctor. And that story may include poverty. It may include being fired recently or whatever. And, but you are an individual patient and that's how we're going to improve medical care, looking at people as individuals, each with their own story. And I think we can do it if we put our minds to it. Well, amen to that. I'm going to plug, I think, you know, the organization that you're, you're, you've been a member of for a long time. We mentioned that at the beginning, which I think is the only medical organization that really takes that principle to heart, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Are you still on the board or involved with them or...? Yes, I'm still on the board. Okay, great. I think so. It's a terrific organization. We've had several um, of, of its leaders uh, come on the show and uh, and share their wisdom. Um, Marilyn, that was fascinating. That's really, it's, it's you know, I can't believe how little of what you said is known or understood or that people are aware of. I mean, it's it's really, a, it's, a, it's a total blackout of... Uh, of black oh, history, blackout. <laughs> blackout of black history, indeed, indeed. Anish, any final? Uh, yeah, uh, I think um, it's it's no doubt that it's done purposefully because it it counters the prevailing narrative, and I think the prevailing narrative um, has a lot of political use, right? Um, you know, the it's not an accident that protests that uh, may have started out um, with uh, good intentions and good motives for. Um, Mr. Floyd, um, you know, kind of, you know, very quickly seemed to turn into political protests. And, and I think, you know, the folks that unfortunately are helped the most by sowing this type of division by taking, you know, the beautiful narratives of Dr. Singleton and, and others and kind of putting them underneath the covers, um, the people that most benefit from those narratives aren't the people that they say they want to help. Um, it's the politicians who use this to gain power and you know your uh description of and i didn't know that the uh, the three-fifths of a person the, the slaving three-fifths of a person you know i didn't know that story but when you as you start to tell it it's like well that, that seems so obvious that you know this would become a you know a political game and that's how it, it, you arrived at that at that uh, at that rule uh so and who benefits is it was was it the Black person who benefited with that? No, it was the politicians. It was uh, northern politicians, southern politicians, etc. So, it's really unfortunate. And I and I, you would hope that um, you know the ease of getting uh, ease of information would, would would allow for some of these stories to kind of bubble up. And and I and I hope that's happening. 
more so now than it was say before when you only had a certain number of media outlets for people to get information from but i think it's going to be a long, a long trek, and you know, but all, 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 all folks like you can do, and folks like Michelle and me can do, is kind of try to tell that that other story, and and hope you know, eventually enough people will uh, will, listen, will, will will hear that hear that message to make a difference. But thanks again; it was really a wonderful story. <laughs> Marilyn, we'll have your Twitter handle. I know you're on Twitter. Um, uh, we'll have it on the show notes. But can you uh, can you tell us what it is for people who uh, who are listening? Uh-huh. At M Singleton MDJD. Terrific. Marilyn, thank you All so right. much. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkadandcoca.com.